Hi, my name is Nipan Patel. I'm a faculty member at the University of California at Berkeley in the departments of molecular cell biology and integrative biology. And in my lectures today, what I hope to tell you about is patterning of the animal along the anterior-posterior axis from the front to the back, and a set of genes called the homeotic or Hox genes, which are intimately involved in this process. But as a way of introduction, like many scientists, I'm fascinated by the diversity that you see. And this slide here illustrates that. It's a very animal-centric slide, but it gives you an idea of the kind of incredible diversity of morphology and in life histories that you find in animals on Earth today. And so we can ask a lot of questions about how this diversity arose in terms of thinking about the evolution of this, of this process. So we can look at this at many different levels. So for example, we can think about in, in the case over here, this is a single species of butterflies that shows many different variations in its color pattern. And so this is an example of a microevolutionary process, variation within a population. And we can also study it at the extreme opposite, which is variation, say, between phyla of animals. We look very, very different from one another. And so scientists have been engaged for a long time in understanding evolution at many different levels of organization. So, but it... In all of this, though, there's also the understanding that all of these animals start off as a single-cell embryo. And many times when you look at that single cell, you can't really tell what kind of uh, species that's going to be, but then it goes ahead and develops into these different adult forms that are quite remarkably different from one another. And so when evolution occurs to give you different organisms, one of the ways we can study that is thinking about how there's changes in the process of embryonic development that lead to those differences in the final organization of the organism. And in fact, Darwin, in, when he wrote in The Origin of Species, he devoted a whole section to embryology because he understood that changes in this pattern of embryogenesis um, would underlie many of the changes in morphology that you see in evolution. And so here's just one example of embryonic development. These are frog embryos. They're just at the two-cell stage. And over the next couple of days, they're going to develop and turn into tadpoles. And here, you're going to watch that process. So the cells are dividing very rapidly, and then you get a process called gastrulation, where tissue goes inside. And in a, in a moment, you'll see the nervous system beginning to form in these embryos. And then you're going to have internal organs developing, and then there's guys are going to hatch out as little tadpoles. So a huge amount is happening there in those few days of development. Um, and so we can sort of think about what are some of the things that are happening. So one thing, of course, is that cells are simply dividing. You're going from a single cell to many thousands, millions of cells. Okay, but it's not those cells are no longer identical to one another. So one of the key things that's going on in embryonic development is cell differentiation. So the cells are becoming different from one another. But at the same time, there's also a process of morphogenesis. So the right cells have to be in the right place at the right time. And it's that process that really gives you the overall form of an organism. Okay. So developmental biologists have been studying the phenomena of development of embryogenesis in many different ways. So you can try to just watch the embryo, and you understand a lot just from watching. The other thing you can do, of course, is do experimental manipulations to perturb cells, maybe to kill a cell, do something like that. But what people have um, been very successful at in the last few decades is really taking a genetic analysis. So the idea is that we want to understand the development of an organism at a very detailed molecular and genetic level. And then we understand how 
development then might be able to generate new morphologies. And so as I mentioned, one of the most successful approaches to trying to understand development is to take a genetic approach, which means to actually do things to manipulate the genes in the embryo. So it could be just random genetic mutagenesis of the animal, or it could be very directed against individual genes. Um, But to understand development at that sort of level, we need model species. We need species which are really amenable to genetic analysis. And that's led to the adoption of a relatively small number of species in which we focused a lot of energy in understanding development at an incredibly detailed level. And those include things like the nematode C. elegans and the zebrafish Danio rario. But what I'm going to focus on today for the start of my talk is is another one of the workhorses for genetic analysis of development, which is Drosophila melanogaster so otherwise known as a fruit fly. So why choose Drosophila? What are the benefits of it? So one of the striking things about Drosophila is that it's a relatively complicated organism. It's small and easy to keep, but it has a rapid life cycle. So the adult flies mate, they lay eggs. Those eggs hatch out actually as larvae, and then those larvae undergo metamorphosis as a pupae and emerge as adults again, which then can mate and start the whole cycle over again. So this whole process in, in Drosophila takes only about two weeks. And so you can do fairly rapid experiments, and especially for doing genetics, it's a very tractable system. Okay. So one of the things that's undergone intensive study at the genetic level is patterning along the anterior-posterior axis of the animal. So you're looking here first at an adult fly, okay? And it's pretty obvious that it has a head and a tail end, right? So the head's over there with the eyes. And then you've got a thorax, three segments of the thorax with legs on those segments. The second segment of the thorax has wings on it. The third segment has a little structure called a halter, which I'll show you more of later. And then you've got segments along the abdomen. Okay, But that's the adult form. And down below, you're seeing a larvae. So this is what's hatched out of the egg. And you can see I've numbered the segments here at the top. So you've got a series of segments of the, of the head, and then you have three thoracic segments. And then at this stage of development, you can clearly see about nine of the abdominal segments. Now, fortunately for us in Drosophila, the segments are clearly defined by these things called denticle belts. Now, I've false-colored them here. They're normally just white. But they're sort of stiff hairs on the bottom of the animal. And they demarcate the separation between segments that you're seeing here. But if you stare at these long enough, you actually realize that there's slightly different patterns to these denticle and you can recognize the individual segments separately from one another. So anyway, this is all to say that the organism is very, very clearly organized as segments, and that that body, those segments are also show regional specification for the different segments are different from one another. And so this was the starting point for a very intensive set of genetic analysis, which has led to a very detailed understanding of the genes that actually set up segments and then give identity to those segments. So this is known as a sort of a cascade of genetic interactions that lead to segmentation of the embryo. And finally, a set of genes which I'm going to focus on today called the Hox or homeotic genes, which are the ones that actually give regional identity. So I'm not going to go through this process of segmentation. Like I said, I'm going to focus on the Hox genes. But I just wanted to mention that this sort of, this this was one of the high points of this sort of genetic approach in Drosophila um, early on. And it led in 1995 to the awarding of the Nobel Prize 
um, in medicine and physiology to Christian Nusslein Volhard, Eric Vischaus, and Ed Lewis. So Nusslein Volhard and Vischaus were primarily working on the process of segmentation, and Ed Lewis is the person who did much of the pioneering work looking at genes that control regionalization of the body plan, the so-called homeotic or Hox genes, which are going to be the main focus of my talk today. So the hallmark of Hox genes, or homeotic genes, is their phenotype. Okay? And maybe one of the most famous of those phenotypes is shown here. This is the phenotype that results from a mutation in a gene called ultrabithorax, often referred to as UBX. So again, over here is a wild-type fly. Okay? And what I want to uh, highlight is that it has, again, three thoracic segments. Each segment of the thorax has a, a pair of legs. But then there's a pair of wings on the second thoracic segment, and the third thoracic segment has a structure called a halter. So if you look here, this inset shows this halter. It's this very, very small structure that's right there. And it looks kind of like a tiny wing, but it has a very different function. It functions as a gyroscope, and it helps to orient the animal as it's flying. So again, the second thoracic segment has the pair of wings, and the third thoracic segment has the pair of halters. Here in a UBX mutant, what you're seeing is that the third thoracic segment, the segment that normally has the halters, is transformed into the second thoracic segment. This results in a really remarkable change in the morphology of the animal. It has two pairs of wings, or four wings now, instead of the normal single pair of two wings. And so this is, again, showing the hallmark of these homeotic mutants. The number of segments is still the same, but what's happened is the identity of the segments have been transformed. In this case, the third thoracic segment has been transformed into the second thoracic segment, causing a repeat of those wings on this animal. And so again, this is a mutation in a gene called ultrabithorax. Now, they're called homeotic or Hox genes, and part of the the reason they're called that actually was from much older literature. So a guy by the name of William Bateson, in, in 1894, he published a book called Materials for the Study of Variation. So Bateson was really fascinated by animals that have serially repeating segments, right? And that includes things like flies, other insects, arthropods, and even us. As humans, we have repeating vertebrae down our axis. And one of the things that Bateson noticed was that he would often see transformations of one region into another. So this, again, shows a fly that Bateson had observed. And in a normal, this is the normal antenna on this side, okay? But in this particular fly, this is not an antenna, a normal antenna anymore. It's been transformed into a leg, so you can see the sort of claw parts at the end of it. And so Bateson was fascinated by these kinds of transformations, and he termed them homeotic or homeosis. So it comes from the Greek root for the word the same. So one part of the body is transformed into the likeness of another. So in this case, the antenna is transformed into a leg. And Bateson really felt that that was telling us something about the guiding principles of development, of how the organism was organized. And so Bateson collected literally thousands of examples of these kinds of of homeotic mutants and other kinds of variation that he would see in organisms that he thought were very useful for thinking about how organisms were put together. The problem, of course, from a genetic viewpoint was that these were sort of one-off animals, right? These were sort of perturbations that probably happened. They may not have had really a particular genetic basis to them. And so they couldn't breed true and, and be reproduced. But in fact, another example of a homeotic mutation in Drosophila looks remarkably like this fly that Bateson has drawn. And it's from a mutation called Antenopedia, another Hox gene. 
So again, in a wild type fly here, this is the scanning electron micrograph of the head of a fly. And what I want to do is point out those antenna that are there in the, in the, in the head of the fly right here. Okay? And in an antennapedia mutant, the antenna are replaced by legs. So that's really a dramatic transformation of the body plan. So where there were antenna, now there are legs on this fly, right? And this is due to a mutation in this gene called antennapedia, another one of the Hox genes. So uh, through the work of many hundreds or thousands of people now, we have a really detailed understanding of these Hox genes in Drosophila to begin with. And in flies, there are eight of these genes, and they're, and they're listed here down at the bottom. So going from anterior to posterior, they're labial, proboscopedia, deformed, sex combs reduced, antennapedia, UBX, abdominal A, and abdominal um, B. And you can see how they're organized in their expression pattern along the axis of the animal. So you're looking here at a side view of a fly embryo. This side is the ventral side, and this side is the dorsal side of the embryo. And then the colors indicate the different domains of expression of these various Hox genes. So you can see they're expressed in these block-like patterns, and sometimes there's overlap in those patterns, headed from the anterior and the head to the posterior end. One of the remarkable things is that these genes are also organized on the chromosome in the same order that they're expressed along the axis of the animal. And this is actually still a, an area of intense investigation, trying to understand exactly why those genes are really organized that way. But for the purposes of our talk, the important thing is that they are expressed spatially along the anterior posterior of the axis like this. Okay? But remember, their hallmark is, is that their mutant phenotype is that they give homeotic transformations. They transform one region of the body into another. So they don't change the number of segments or repeats of the animal, but they cause their identity to be shifted. So here's just an illustration of how these genes are expressed. In this case, it will be a particular example, UBX. So now I'm showing you a ventral view of the fly embryo. The head is up here, the tail is down here. The grooves you see here are the segments. So this embryo is about halfway through embryogenesis, which for flies is around 12 hours or so of development. And again, you can very clearly see the segments. And what we're going to do, we'll put this movie into motion, and you can see we're just like imaged through half of the embryo. And if we peel away that surface, and now we're looking at a gene called engrailed, which marks the posterior boundary of each segment in green. And in red now, we have one of these Hox genes, UBX, which again is expressed in a particular domain of the embryo shown here by that, by that red coloring. Here's another example of looking at the localization of some of these Hox genes. So in this case, sex comes reduced antennapedia, ultrabithorax, and abdominal B. And again, you can see that these genes are expressed along the anterior posterior axis of the animal. Anterior is to this end, posterior is here. And the darkened area towards the middle is the nervous system of the animal. But again, the point is, is that these genes have very spatially restricted expression patterns. Okay, so it turns out that all of these genes are actually related to one another and that they have a common sequence in them called uh, a homeodomain, or the, sorry, the, the DNA sequence is called the homeobox, and it includes a structure called the homeodomain, which is illustrated here. And this uh, domain allows the protein to bind specifically to sequences, to DNA sequences. So these are what are called transcription factors. So they turn out to be regulatory molecules that turn on and off hundreds if not thousands of other genes. So these genes are expressed in very specific places along the axis. Each one is slightly different, and each one controls different sets of downstream targets, which gives, in the end, the final morphology of the particular segments that those genes are expressed in. Okay.
So I told you, I showed you some examples of Hox mutants that actually make it to adulthood, and you can see transformations of the animal. But in fact, for any of these Hox genes, if you completely delete the gene or you make a mutation that we would call a null mutation, a completely non-functional copy of the gene, what happens is, is that these embryos actually die at the end of embryogenesis. But when you look at them, you can again see these spectacular homeotic transformations of the body plan. And I'm going to mostly talk about the most posterior of the three genes, so ultrabithorax, abdominal A, and abdominal B. And this is traditionally called the bithorax complex of Drosophila. And what I'm illustrating here is the phenotype that you see. So first, if you look at this line that says wild type, what I've done is I've, I've given you the names of the different segments of the animal, starting in the posterior part of the head, mandible, maxillary, labial, and then you've got the three thoracic segments, T1, 2, and 3, and then here I'm illustrating eight of the abdominal segments. So first, let's start with UBX. So what happens when you completely remove the UBX gene? So the, again, the animal dies as an embryo, but when you look at it, at the end of embryogenesis, it forms those denticle belts. You can look at them and you can tell what transformations have occurred. And what happens is that T3 and A1 now are transformed into T2. So now you have an animal with three T2 segments and no T3 and A1. Likewise, in an abdominal A, mutant A2 through a2 through A4 are eliminated, or they're transformed, sorry, into A1, right? So no segments are deleted. There's just a transformation of the segments. And finally, in an abdominal B mutant, it's even more posterior in its phenotype, and now what happens is that A5 on back are transformed into A4. So this is their, the hallmark of the homeotic mutants, that they, you don't change the number of segments, but you're transforming their identity. Okay. So this is how those three genes are expressed. So UBX shown there in green, um, abdominal A shown in this purple color, and abdominal B in red. And what you can see is they have this sort of nested pattern of expression. And I'll show you those domains in a little more detail in a second, but this is like, again, the typical kind of patterns that you see for Hox genes when, during embryogenesis. And again, in, in this animal, the head is towards the top and the tail is towards the bottom. So now what we can do is we can take those expression patterns I just showed you and relate them to the segments and the phenotypes that you see. So now we have the domains of expression of UBX, abdominal A, and abdominal B relative to the different segments. And now we can think now that there's actually a really simple set of rules now that we can apply to understanding the phenotypes. So let's start with UBX. So UBX begins expression in T3. And so the transformation begins in T3 and A1, and those segments are transformed to the segment in front, which is T2. But that transformation ends when you start at the, when you get to the anterior boundary of the next gene, abdominal A. Likewise, then, when you delete abdominal A, the transformation starts at the leading edge of abdominal A, which is here in A2. So that segment gets transformed to the segment in front, A1. That transformation to A1 extends until you get to the anterior boundary of the next Hox gene, which is abdominal B. And then, likewise, the abdominal B transformation starts at that boundary there at A5 and goes on back. And those segments, again, now take on the identity of the segment in front, which is A4. So this leads to a relatively simple rule that we apply to Hox genes, um, which is that when you delete expression of a Hox gene, then those segments that lose expression take on the identity of the segment in front of them. And now I'm, I'm telling you this, I'm illustrating it for this set of genes, UBX, abdominal A, abdominal B, the so-called bithorax complex. Things get more complicated in the head, but this is the set of genes we're going to focus in quite a bit on. So just remember that set of rules for this set of genes. So how is it then that you end up, though, with 
adult phenotypes. So I told you that when you delete these genes, you get these transformations. The embryo makes it to the end of embryogenesis, but then dies with these transformations that you can see. So the way that you can think about how you get adult transformations is first you have to understand where the adult tissues come from. So early in embryogenesis, you know, the external morphology of the embryo is set up, but sets of cells are set aside that are going to be the adult structures. So these form structures called imaginal discs, and so these are impocketing of cells that in the larvae end up inside and end up growing quite large inside those larvae. And those imaginal discs give rise to the different adult structures. So there's an imaginal disc for the wings, an imaginal disc for the haltiers, imaginal disc for the legs, and so on. And so those structures are set aside in development, but they're set aside in the same associated segment. So the haltier disc, for example, is set aside in the third thoracic segment of the embryo. The wing discs are set aside from cells of the second thoracic segment. And remember then again where these Hox genes are expressed. So for example, UBX is expressed from T3 on back. Okay, so that means it's also expressed in those imaginal discs in those regions, right? And in this case, the important one is, is going to be in T3. And so what you have is that in the second thoracic segment of the larvae when it's growing, you have an imaginal disc, sorry, that's going to make the, the wing, and then you have an imaginal disc that's going to make the haltier. And the wing disc is located in the second thoracic segment, and the haltier disc is located in the third thoracic segment. So in keeping with that, UBX is expressed in the third thoracic segment, so what you see is that the haltier disc is expressing UBX, shown in green here, but the wing disc proper is not expressing UBX. And so it's that difference that actually sets the difference between T2 and T3. So what happens in that UBX mutant that gives rise to this four-winged fly is that the gene is perfectly normally expressed in the embryo, but that expression is lost later. So the halter disc, which should be expressing UBX, loses UBX expression. It then transforms into the equivalent disc in the second thoracic segment, which is the wing disc. And when the animal finishes metamorphosis, then you end up with this four-winged fly instead of the normal two-winged fly. And so this kind of transformation that goes and you see as a phenotype in the adults, in this case, it's loss of UBX expression from T3 late in development. So that's why it makes it through embryogenesis, but then it has this hallmark adult transformation. So how does that happen? So again, if you just think back again to what you know about um, the general structure of genes, so we often think of a gene as its coding region, but just as importantly are these flanking regions called regulatory regions. And so if we were to eliminate the coding region, that would give us a null allele, a complete loss of function. But instead, these kinds of mutations that make it to adulthood are generally mutations in the regulatory DNA. So they're affecting the expression, and they're often in some part of the regulatory DNA, which is only um, affecting late expression of the gene, and that gives us these kinds of phenotypes. And in fact, these regulatory regions can be quite complicated, so you can have different regulatory regions for different parts of an expression pattern. In this case, I've just made up an example in a mouse where there's some gene expressed in the brain and the spinal cord, but there's different enhancers, what we call regulatory regions for that. So all that is to say that, in fact, you can get mutations that give very, very specific phenotypes because they're only knocking out a portion of the function of a gene. Okay, so um, back to our, our, our um, point about these genes then being deployed along the anterior-posterior axis of the animal and being transcription factors. So then these control the overall patterning along the whole axis. And I told you in a little detail about the more posterior three, but then there's five more genes which are controlling more anterior regions of the animal. 
So one of the huge discoveries in the field of developmental biology a couple decades ago was the finding that this was not a unique phenomenon at Drosophila. And in fact, you could find the same complex of genes essentially in all animals. And I'm just showing you an example here in mice where you have the similar complex that's expressed in a similar way, being that it's in, in particular parts of the anterior-posterior axis of the animal. Um, and, and I'll show you in a minute that these also are responsible for regionalization of the body plan of a mouse and, and also presumably a human where you have the same complex. The one thing that this diagram doesn't show you is an additional complexity, which is that in mice and humans and other vertebrates, there's actually four copies of the complex. So there's a little bit more complexity there. But overall, there's that same similar organization. And if you start to mutate these genes in something like a mouse, you get the same sort of phenotypes that you see in flies. So in this case, I'm showing here a wild-type mouse where you have the specialized vertebrae of the thorax with the ribs, and then you've got lumbar vertebrae, which are the back and sacral, which are even more posterior. And in this particular mutant mouse, knocked out a couple different Hox genes, and what happens is, is that now the lumbar and sacral ver uh, vertebrae are transformed to be more thoracic-like, so they have ribs on them. So remember back to the whole idea that, in fact, what happens is when you delete a Hox gene, then segments take on a more anterior identity. And that's exactly what you're seeing in this mouse mutant. So um, from the perspective of developmental biology, this was, of course, a spectacular uh, discovery that this set of genes that had been discovered in flies really gave rise to a, a, a very universal understanding of a conserved mechanism for setting up regionalization along the anterior posterior axis of the animal. And in fact, the presence of these Hox genes is often um, by some, used by some as a, as a signature of being an animal, that you use these genes to set up your regionalization of the body, or more particularly the set of animals called bilaterians, the ones that have a left and a right and anterior posterior axis. So that's great from understanding the development. Why were evolutionary biologists so excited by this kind of discovery? And for that, let's go back to um, this slide again that shows the kind of transformation that you get. So we end up with this four-winged fly, right? But that might remind you of something, right? So that looks a little bit like other insects that are four-winged insects. So again, here's our homeotic mutant of a, of a fly, which now has four wings. But if you think about it, and to some people, that looked a little bit like a dragonfly or another four-winged insect. And so people thought, well, maybe this is telling us something about the evolution of insects, about how you change the pattern of the body plan in insects. Okay? So we can take that a little bit further. So as evolutionary, if thinking from an evolutionary viewpoint, one of the things we'd like to know then, well, was the ancestor of a fly and a dragonfly, did it have one pair of wings like the extant flies, or did it have two pairs of wings like this dragonfly, okay? So how would we answer that question? So one way to think about that is to think about the phylogeny of insects, so their evolutionary history and the branching pattern that you see. And that's what's shown here. So different orders of insects are shown here. And if you think about it, right, you can ask the question, well, what's the most parsimonious explanation for a common ancestor way back here? Did it have two pairs of wings? Or did it have a single pair of wings? And one way we can answer that is if we look at this distribution, one of the things that you notice is that, in fact, the only insect with just a single pair of wings, right, the two wings, is Drosophila, is, is Diptera. And in fact, Diptera means two wings. And so if you look at other insects like butterflies or wasps or grasshoppers or damselflies and dragonflies, what you see is all of those insects have two pairs of wings or four wings. And then ancestrally, though, something like silverfish, 
um, the realization is, is that initially you didn't have wings, you evolved wings, but when you evolved wings, you had at least two pairs of wings, and then the very derived state is what you see in Drosophila with only a single pair of wings. So that means the common ancestor to flies and these other winged insects would have had four wings or two pairs of wings. So that gives us a very specific scenario for thinking about, well, could Hox genes explain this change in wing number? Okay, so now we're going from understanding a gene that's involved in development of Drosophila and thinking about how it might be involved in evolution of insects. So I'll give you a sort of a specific scenario here that you had a common ancestor, which is some, you know, made-up drawing that we have down here, but the key point is, is that it has two pairs of wings, okay? And then you have extant insects that still have two pairs of wings, and in this example I'm showing you a butterfly, which clearly has two pairs of wings, and then Here's our fly, which has a single pair of wings, and on T3, instead of wings, it has a halter. And we know that UBX is expressed in T3 and that halter on back, okay? And so now we can come up with a couple hypotheses about how we might explain the evolution of insects or the wing number in insects from thinking about a Hox gene like UBX. So one hypothesis, and this is actually one of the things that Ed Lewis first thought about, was, well, maybe this gene UBX is actually unique to flies, to the set of insects, diptera, that only have the single pair of wings. And that the UBX gene arose somewhere in this lineage leading to flies. And it wasn't present in that common ancestor, and it's not present then, presumably in extant um, two-winged insects, or four, sorry, two, insects with two pairs of wings like a butterfly. So we know that this isn't true because um, we now know that UBX is a very ancient gene, and you find copies of it in all insects, all arthropods, and things like that. So we can rule this hypothesis out right away. A very attractive hypothesis, though, is that, in fact, that four-winged mutant in, in, of flies was actually telling you something about the kinds of regulatory changes that might have occurred. So in this scenario, again, in flies, we know the data that UBX is expressed from T3 on back. But in this hypothesis, what we would say is that in the common ancestor, it was actually expressed just from A1 back, okay? So UBX is no longer expressed in T3. So then T3 has a pair of wings on it like T2. And that we would see the same pattern in extant um, insects with two pairs of wings like a butterfly. So the difference between a butterfly and a fly would be that in flies, UBX is expressed from T3 on back. But in something like a butterfly, it's expressed from A1 on back. Okay? And that's presumably then also telling us something about this ancestor. There's a third hypothesis, which is that, in fact, UBX hasn't been involved in this process at all. So UBX has the same expression pattern in butterflies as it does in flies. And it's always had that pattern. So it's hypothesis, too, that we can actually test pretty quickly. So we can ask, okay, so is the pattern of expression between UBX different in flies from a uh, insects with two pairs of wings, like a butterfly or a grasshopper or a beetle or something like that. And from that, we can make some sort of inferences about the common ancestor. Unfortunately, these common ancestors died out a long time ago, so we can't look at them. Okay, but we can look at extant animals. So first of all, let's just look at their embryo. So here's a fly embryo, and UBX again is expressed from T3 on back. But lo and behold, if we look at a beetle or a grasshopper, and these are examples of insects with um, with four wings, two pairs of wings, we actually see the exact same pattern. It's expressed from T3 on back. An even more convincing illustration comes from work that was done in butterflies. So butterflies, again, are a very clear example of an insect with two pairs of wings, a forewing on T2 and a hind wing on T3. 
Okay, so now we can ask, well, what do you see? So these are the imaginal discs for those two segments. So this is a four-wing disc in T2 and a hindwing disc in T3. And when we look at UBX expression, what we see is that, in fact, the hindwing expresses UBX and the four-wing doesn't. So, in fact, the pattern is just like in Drosophila. It's expressed in the imaginal disc of T3 and not in the imaginal disc of T2. Okay, but then, but, why, but butterflies have two pairs of wings. But, of course, if you realize and think about it, those two wings are not identical to each other. So in this particular butterfly, the pattern and shape of the forewing is very different than the pattern and shape of the hindwing. And so, in fact, the idea would be that UBX still plays a role. We call both of these wings, but they have different patterns um, and different shapes and so on, those two wings. And in fact, you can get homeotic mutants in butterflies as well. So this is showing an example here, so a normal butterfly. And in this butterfly, this region of the hind wing has been transformed into forewing. So you can see this little patch where the pattern, and in fact the scale morphology, is the same as the forewing. And this is actually an area of the wing in which UBX is not being expressed properly. So it should be expressed uniformly in this hind wing, and this is a little area of the wing where UBX is not being expressed, and you see this homeotic transformation. So what it means is that hypothesis three is actually the right conclusion, that in fact UBX has always been expressed from T3 on back. Okay, but then why is it that flies don't have what we would call a wing on T3? They have this haltier structure. So the answer is, is that what's happened is that UBX has always been distinguishing T3 from T2, but how it does that is changed because the downstream targets have changed. So this pattern has been conserved from the ancestor, whatever that may have looked like in the, in the T3 wing. You still always have it in the T3 wing. But in flies, it's now somehow repressing the normal pattern of a wing, the growth of the wing, and so on, and turning on or off genes that end up giving you this halter morphology. Where in butterflies, you're maintaining those downstream targets, so you still have a wing, though then now the color and the shape of that wing is different than T2. And so this is an example then where um, we can see now we've made great strides in understanding the development of organisms by understanding what these Hox genes do in individual species like Drosophila and mice and so on. But it seems that at least in the case of insects, these genes are actually quite static in their expression pattern. And they're not necessarily moving around to give different morphology. Um, and so what I'm going to do now is... is, is um, in the next talk, I'm going to give you a, an example, though, where we can say that Hox genes are moving around and giving rise to changes in evolution. So in this first part, really, again, just to reiterate, what I've really tried to drive home is our understanding of what Hox genes do from the detailed analysis in animals like Drosophila. And that gives us an idea of what they might do in evolution. I ended my talk with maybe a slightly you know, negative note by telling you that, well, in the case of flies, moving around the Hox genes, a really good hypothesis for what they um, might do in evolution, turn out not to necessarily be true, though we still gain some really interesting insight into how downstream changes to the Hox genes may be involved in evolution. But as I said, what we're going to do in the, in the next section is jump outside of insects and give you an example where we can show you that it looks like changing around Hox gene expression has, in fact, led to evolutionary changes in animals.